Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and thanks for joining me for another Bar Cart Foundations episode. These are the episodes where we zoom in on one of the most important topics or issues confronting home bartenders everywhere. I try and break things down into the simplest possible terms, lay all the components out on the table for you to examine, and then together we figure out how to put together the pieces. Today's subject is tasting notes, how to think about them and how to give them in a way that makes you seem intelligent but not obnoxious. Have you ever been around someone who's really good at giving tasting notes? You know, you're sitting around sampling some beer, let's say, or wine or cocktails, and this one person just keeps on throwing out terms like buttery or stone fruit or tobacco, and you're like, ah, yes, this beer tastes very beery. Strong beer aroma with beer on the palate and a distinct beerish finish. I give this beer a rating of five beers. If so, and if you'd like to correct that, this episode is for you. So, what are tasting notes? Well, if you think about it, people like to tell stories. We know this about our relatives who tell the same stories over and over at family gatherings. We know this about that one person at the office who gossips about everybody and anybody. And we even know it about the oldest human beings who scrawled hunting scenes and bestiaries across the walls of their caves. Making up a fake story about a random set of facts can even help us to remember things more effectively, right? That's how mnemonic devices work much of the time. And some of our earliest encounters with written language comes in the form of being read to or trying to read, yeah, stories. The point is, if you care about something, then there's a story to tell. And that, I think, is the best way to approach tasting notes. The one thing we know for certain about the person I was imitating a minute ago who gave the extremely beerish tasting notes is that he or she cared way less about how that beer tasted than the person who was tasting all the stone fruit and the tobacco. So that's lesson number one. You gotta care. If you don't, then the rest of this episode really doesn't matter. Once the question of motivation gets settled, it's time to get down to business. What are tasting notes and what separates a good set of tasting notes from a useless one? Well, Blake Story's tasting notes have structure. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Think about it. In order to taste literally anything, you've got to first approach that thing, confirm what it is, decide if you want to consume it, figure out how to get it into your mouth from its container, and then you experience a hugely complicated set of sensory stimuli. That's a lot of things going on before you even have a chance to whip out your journal and jot down some notes. So let's slow things down a bit and take it step by step. As author Leanne Lavin mentioned during our interview last episode, there's a popular saying among chefs that we eat with the eyes first, or 
Put another way, if you can see your eyes are constantly gathering information about the world and that visual info is normally where tasting begins. You see your wine or your cocktail identifying what color it is and how it's being served and that information triggers a set of memories called a schema that basically sets your expectations for that experience based on similar experiences you've had from your past. This is why you see a lot of professional tasters conducting blind tasting so that their objective experience of that flavor isn't impacted by what they recall tasting in the past. Because as we know, memory is not always the most reliable thing. But for the rest of us, especially those of you just starting out, gathering that visual information can be actually really helpful. Is it a light red wine or a dark red wine? What's that white foam on the top of the cocktail? These are clues that will prime your senses and help you understand where this tasting fits in with everything else you've experienced before. After you visually assess what you're tasting, the next step is to cool your jets. It's not time to take a swig just yet. If you've had the pleasure of listening to my interview with flavor researcher Dan McCall way back in episode seven, You'll recall that flavor has a lot to do with aroma. Let's take a brief listen to Professor McCall as he explains just how complex and important our smell pathway is for flavor, as well as how smell signals are married with other senses in the brain. Um, smell also has a sort of a lock and key system, whereas in the tongue you probably have 40 or so different locks for the different kinds of molecules that you can taste. You have 30 different kinds of locks for bitter molecules, then um, a couple for sweet, a couple for umami. So upwards of 40 or so different shapes of locks in the tongue. In the nose, you have uh, over 400, so 450 to 500 different shapes of locks in the nose that each are responsive to different shapes of different molecules of things that we can detect. And of course, there are way more than 450 different kinds of molecules that you can detect, or aromas are vastly more complicated than that. But each receptor can receive different kinds of molecules, but it's all based on shape. It's a lock and key system. So when the right kind of molecule lands on the right kind of receptor, you send a signal up into a region of the brain that's right above the nose called the olfactory bulb. And that processes the signal and sends it back to other regions of the brain. There's also a smell cortex region of the brain that helps us identify smells. But what's interesting for flavor is that there's a further structure. If you look deeper into the brain, further upstream from this signal, this pathway, there's a region called the orbital frontal cortex in the frontal part of your brain, sort of behind and above your eyes. And the orbital frontal cortex brings signals from different parts of the brain together. So there are signals that come from the taste cortex and signals that come from the smell cortex and signals that come from the vision system, the visual system. And they all come together in this region called the orbital frontal cortex. And we think that's where flavor perception happens, is that the, it's this unifying of these signals from these different systems. So if there's a flavor section of the brain, that's probably where it is. So in order to get this full flavor picture in the brain, we need to make sure we're triggering those lock and key mechanisms in the smell pathway. Otherwise, we're missing out on valuable information that could make our tasting notes richer and more interesting. In fact, there's a cool little mnemonic device in the world of formal wine tasting that can even help you to remember at what point in the tasting process you should take a moment to evaluate the aromatic properties of your drink. 
The mnemonic is called the five S's, and they are in this order see, swirl, sniff, swish, and spit. Or if you're not a sommelier, you can replace that last one with swallow. It's a lot more enjoyable that way. When conducting a wine tasting, a professional is usually going to make observations about the color and clarity of the wine first. So that's why the first S is to see the liquid. The second S, swirl, is really meant to prepare the beverage for your nose. And if you think about it, you know, most wines and spirits spend a significant portion of their life locked away in the bottle, away from the influences of air. So by swirling your liquid in the glass, you're basically waking up your beverage and allowing it to show its true colors. This might not be true for cocktails per se, but if you're looking to conduct a tasting of a wine or a spirit, giving your glass a swirl before you take a whiff is definitely going to enhance the process. Which brings us to another point about smell, especially in the world of spirits. If you're tasting a particularly high-proof beverage, really we're talking about things that are over 45% alcohol by volume here, which would be over 90 proof. It's often useful to add a small amount of water to the equation to help counteract the alcohol burn and open up the flavor profile. This is an age-old whiskey tasting technique, but it can just as easily be applied effectively across the spirit spectrum. The value of making notes on the aroma of a drink is that in many cases, what you smell is going to differ from what you taste. And if the purpose of tasting notes is to tell a story, then comparing similarities and differences between what you smell and what you taste makes for compelling dialogue. It's one of the best ways to help build the plot of your flavor story. Now, what happens if you sniff your beverage and you're just not able to identify what aromas you're getting? This happened to me when I took my first intro wine class. Everybody in the room was throwing out notes like dried fig and black currant, and I was completely at a loss. Those smells just weren't in my vocabulary. So one thing you can do to really change this is to start picking up everything in the kind of food realm and even beyond, and just giving it a quick little sniff. The produce section of the grocery store is a great place to do this, but you can just as easily do it with a nice hunk of aged Parmesan or a loaf of fresh baked rye bread. And it helps sometimes when you're doing this to close your eyes and really focus all your mental energy on the sensation of smell. And what this does is it blocks out other visual static and associations from messing up the process and helping you to form stronger memory connections with that smell. After you make your observations about the aroma of the beverage in front of you, it's finally time for the most exciting part of the tasting process, the first sip. If you really want to ensure that you're getting the most objective impression of your drink, it helps to make sure you're not inadvertently throwing more flavors into the equation. So tasting something soon after you've brushed your teeth or chewed gum or smoked a cigar, are all bad ideas if you're serious about telling the story of the flavors at hand. Another question that arises in the process of taking that first sip is, how does this process work? Do I take a big sip or a small one? How long do I let it sit in my mouth? Do I swish it around? And despite what some 
tasting experts may tell you, there's really no one perfect template for how to taste something. But there are a few general bits of advice that can enhance the process. First, be sure to take in some air with your sip. Yeah, you can take your sip and then do that obnoxious, comical slurping thing where you take air in your mouth and kind of aerate the liquid. Or you can be a bit more normal about it and just take in some air when you sip. Also, make sure you take in enough liquid so that all the different parts of your palate get to engage with the flavor. This includes all parts of your tongue, your cheeks, the roof of your mouth, everything. But don't take a swig so large that it's hard to swallow. Big swigs affect the way you breathe, and that doesn't help the tasting. Next, move the liquid around your mouth a bit. You don't need to treat it like mouthwash, and you probably shouldn't. But just like swirling the wine or spirit in the glass will help open it up, agitating a bit in the mouth without going overboard will ensure a well-rounded tasting. Finally, as with many things, time is a key ingredient. When you swallow your sip, don't go straight for another one. Flavor evolves on the palate, and it's important that you focus on what happens as your primary flavors evolve into the part of the tasting known as the finish. What's the difference between the primary flavors and the finish? Well, it's actually kind of like the differences between the smell, which many people call the nose, and what happens on the palate. You're dealing with the same liquid here, but you're often picking up different aspects of the overall flavor. Another way to put it is that the finish is kind of like a flavor echo. Just like sound waves change as they bounce off objects, creating that echo-like distortion, flavor is going to change as your brain has time to process what's going on and as new information becomes available in the absence of that liquid. And this is the part of the tasting where you can pick up on some of the trickier parts of flavor. Things like astringency versus juiciness, spiciness, numbing or cooling. Basically, sensations that are crucial to flavor, but that don't really fall into the taste buds domain. Stepping back, at this point we've covered pretty much the entire tasting process, from the first approach where you spot your prey, to the aromatic foreplay, to the nitty-gritty tasting swish fest, to the lingering finish. Our next question is, how do you take all this raw data and use it to tell a story? How do you take your first step into the realm of tasting notes? There's this really great moment near the beginning of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers where Aragorn, the rugged tracker and heir to the throne of Gondor, uses clues left in the aftermath of a battle to determine what happened to the two hobbits he and his comrades are attempting to rescue, Merry and Pippin. If you haven't read the book, in which case, shame on you. Basically, what happens is that the hobbits are taken by a bunch of bad guys who then get ambushed in the middle of the night, and Aragorn is trying to figure out if they're dead too, or if somehow they managed to escape. Right as they're about to give up hope, Aragorn notices a couple hobbit-sized depressions in the ground where presumably Merry and Pippin had lain, and he's then able to use his tracking skills to piece together what happened. He finds a cut rope where they were able to free themselves from their bonds. He sees where they got into a scuffle with one of their captors, and finally, he's able to kind of track them into the forest where they made their escape. I bring this up 
because in my opinion, this tracker mentality is probably the most useful entry into tasting notes. The assumption is you're going to read the scene, pay attention to all the details, and like Aragorn does, use the clues to tell a story. And the beauty is that anybody can do this as long as they pay attention. If you're just starting out, though, one really useful tool to have with you while you're kind of reading the clues and tracking down flavors is something called a flavor wheel. And this is a visualization of some of the most common flavors in wines or spirits that starts general in the center of the wheel. And then as you work your way out toward the edges of the wheel, it gets increasingly more specific, helping you to identify flavor notes in your tasting. So for example, your first impression of something, let's say a wine here might be fruity. This is a very general tasting note. And your flavor wheel can then prompt you to consider whether it's perhaps a berry flavor or a tropical fruit flavor or, or maybe even a dried fruit flavor. And at that point, maybe once you've decided that it's more of a tropical fruit flavor, you go even farther out toward the edges and you can use the flavor wheel to decide if it's more of a pineapple or a banana or maybe a mango flavor. If an experienced taster is like Superman, then a novice taster who knows how to properly use a flavor wheel is more like Iron Man or Batman. You might not have this genetic predisposition to superherohood. It might not be innate, in other words, but you've got the right tools to help you do your thing. So you're just as effective if you can use that flavor wheel effectively. We've got links to a few really good flavor wheel examples on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. So please, please head over there and check them out. The last part of the tasting notes process involves, of course, putting together your story in words in a useful way. And I suppose the first thing I should add is that not every tasting is the right setting for an exhaustive set of tasting notes. If you're just kind of casually hanging out with a large group of people, there might not be time or a chance to give all of your impressions across all of the different parts of the flavor spectrum. So in these cases, I recommend selecting either the most noteworthy flavor attribute to comment on, or if you pick up on something that the other people in the group are maybe missing, that might be a good way to advance the conversation as long as you manage to not come off like a wine snob or a cocktail snob in the process. That part's key. But overall, when assembling your tasting notes, take a cue from actual stories, all of which contain the following elements. A plot, a cast of characters, a setting and a context, and a place in the wider realm of all the other stories that exist. The plot structure is just like the tasting procedure we just described. Start with visual cues, then move to smell, then observe the taste and the finish. That's kind of like the inciting incident, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and then the kind of wrap up of the story. The flavors, of course, are your characters. And the cool thing about this is that sometimes characters are friends, and sometimes they don't get along that well and they have conflicts. And the good thing about that is that conflicts are interesting. This is where the meat of the story occurs. So it's okay if some of the characters in your story aren't getting along all that well. That's something to make note of. 
The setting and context of your tasting can be everything from the year on the wine label, the mash bill on your whiskey label, the type of glass your beverage is in, the food you're pairing it with, and really any other number of variables. And all of these features that I just described allow you to compare the liquid in front of you with all the other stuff that exists in the world and in your personal bank of flavor memories, whether you're simply comparing your red wine to other red wines or your 18-year-old Highland single malt with other 18-year-old Highland single malts out there. In terms of the language you use to write your tasting notes, specificity is key. I have one really raging pet peeve when it comes to wine, and it's the term fruit forward. Yeah, I know you can have dry wines and acidic wines and flinty austere wines, so maybe I'm overreacting here, but in my opinion, fruit forward just doesn't give me any information because at some point, most wines you'll come across display a significant fruity note. So fruit forward, in my opinion, is just an example of a useless tasting note that doesn't advance the story. It wastes time. On the other hand, it is possible to go overboard and start reaching for specific tasting notes that make for interesting reading, but that maybe don't accurately describe the scene. Ah yes, this young medium-bodied pilsner produced by one of the preeminent brewing families in the country displays vibrant carbonation, which stimulates the palate, paving the way for a seductive malted character, underscored by insinuating German hops and culminating in a dry finish that betrays its beechwood-aged beauty. I just described Budweiser just goes to show that flowery language doesn't always do justice to the subject at hand. Instead, when you're writing, stick with specific nouns and adjectives. And if something seems weird or off the wall, it's not necessarily wrong. My favorite example of this was back when I first got into wine and I was tasting a bottle that I was just absolutely thrilled to have acquired. And my then girlfriend, now wife, offered a tasting note of marshmallow. And I, of course, I scoffed at it. I gave some sort of bullshit feedback explaining how I thought she was actually tasting something else entirely. But then I got curious and a little bit nervous. <laughs> and I went and I looked up tasting notes from other people who had also tasted that very same wine. And lo and behold, there was marshmallow staring me right in the face. If you've got any questions or comments on how to give great tasting notes, please, please, please send them our way by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com or by chatting us up on Facebook or Instagram at modernbarcart. I'm going to round out this episode by playing for you a clip that didn't quite make it into our vodka episode, which involved a really exhaustive comparative tasting of three different vodkas. So... If you'd like to listen to how Alex, Jordan, and I approached that particularly tricky tasting, maybe go back and revisit that episode, episode 28, knowing what you now know about the best practices for giving tasting notes. But for now, 
Just listen to how we taste through this orange-infused vodka and pay particular attention to the way we use just a few very basic tasting notes to compare it with other products we're familiar with and even make some guesses about how we would use it in our future cocktail experiments. Even though we don't follow some of the formal tasting steps described in this episode, our notes still turned out to be really practical. So I think this is kind of a cool little case study to wrap up with. So we do have one last thing to try, and this is kind of like a subcategory of this vodka, this vodka episode, in that what, what does one do with vodka that does not taste anything? Often one flavors it. Uh, so we've got one of these tonight. So um, Alex, you want you want to explain? Yeah, so let's just say it's been a long week, and uh, I was going to the store today before uh, you know getting over here, and I was looking for... for Different vodkas um, from made from different things, and so found the grape, found the way, and uh, I saw this one from St. George, uh, which is a distillery I think we all uh, we all like. Yeah. Uh, some of their products, I mean, they, they make so many different kinds of products. Um, they're excellent. I was, yeah, they, they're they really excellent. excellent. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking to someone about their absinthe earlier this week, and, and all that. So very, very good. Really mm-hmm. good stuff. And so I saw this, and I just read the front of the label, and I glanced at the back, and it, it appeared to me that they made it. With um, w- with a couple different kinds of oranges, turns out w- upon further research, what we're really getting, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing, because I think that if you're going to flavor a vodka, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. Like there, there are a lot of flavored vodkas where you'll you'll add it at the end, you'll add in some chemical flavoring, some chemical sugars that re- you know basically resemble orange. Sure. And it's a good thing that yeah. those bottles right now are not on this print. Like, no. Like, you would this never find a bottle of vodka in this house that was flavored <laughs> to taste like Swedish fish, for example. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Right, Jordan? Uh, you might you might find one of those bottles around here somewhere. Uh, um, but, but with, with not Saint, with consent, though. <laughs> but with St. George, what, what, uh, what, what, they're, what they're telling us on the website, and I, I have no reason to not believe them, uh, is that... <laughs> Um, they take what they do is they, they take a neutral grain spirit and they combine it and they infuse it with a couple different kinds of oranges. Um, they infuse different batches with three different kinds of oranges. Okay. Then they distill those separately, then combine them and distill them again. But either way, it's uh, you know the distillery, no love and trust. So um, I, I just got my first sip of it, and I'll be honest, it's not the the it's not obviously it's not the harsh chemical. Sweetness that I think of when I think of orange vodka. Um, you know, I have an affiliation with I, I orange vodka because that you associate with orange no, vodka. No, well, I... no, because <laughs> on the you know on, on our podcast page, even I talk about how the first cocktail I ever made was uh, Magic Fanta, which oh, was Magic Fanta, which was chemically sweetened uh, vodka, orange okay. vodka with Fanta, orange Fanta that is. Uh, if you couldn't tell, so but you're going with the complimentary approach rather than the, uh, trying <laughs> yeah. to go in opposite yeah, directions. Yeah, I, I wasn't really going for an approach other than, hey, this is easy to drink. Um, so, but no, th- I mean, this is. I get, I almost get, you know, I get, obviously there's a lot of orange in there on the nose and uh, on the tongue, but I also, I just got the, a slight floral note as soon mm-hmm. as I, I drink it, and and that's probably due to them using quality ingredients yeah. and. Uh. And actually, I think, you, I think you don't. No, no, no. I, I, uh, I you think, actually agree? I, no, I, I'm not gonna. I'm going in a different direction altogether. Um, <laughs> I think that you could add this significant amounts of this to, like, uh, 
orange soda, like a San Pellegrino or something yeah. like that, uh, yeah. and you wouldn't notice that it's there. <laughs> like, sure. And I mean, like to be fair, that is the accepted role of flavored vodka. Right. You know, like let's easy mixer. let's get messed up without knowing um. it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna lie. This reminds me, and this is totally self-promotional, but it reminds me of my orange bitters because we use so much fresh citrus peel, yeah. and I'm getting those same flavors here. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, there's, oh. there's, it's not made in the same way, and so there's some distinct differences in the mouthfeel and texture. But, but there's even I, I like I liked your earlier point that it's you you were thinking of it as an or, like an orange liqueur, and um, it's it certainly wouldn't replace triple sec or carousel and a cocktail but you could you could play with it in a similar space you could play with it to take it like let's say you were making a cocktail and you were trying to do a spin-off of something that had carousel but you had a cocktail paradigm that for some reason just would not accept that would it maybe take a little bit of this instead right so my, my thought is like i really like dry carousel so the, yeah. the stuff that is less sweet and this is either further down that spectrum, you could get the orange flavor with the alcohol without the sugar or as much sugar. And, uh, and, and honestly, I get, I even, I think and this would be evident based on having, a, using peel, real peel, is that there's a bitterness in there, a little bit. I mean, it's on, it's more on the back end uh, as it kind of, you know, rolls back on the tongue and yep. all that, but um, I, I mean, I've never had a vodka like that. Because again, typically with a flavored vodka, it's just all, all you know, highlights all the time, and and, yeah. and that's it can it's be the, unpleasant. It's the uh, the unicorn shitting rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed and a whole lot of tasting note insights by yours truly. This has been a Modern Barkhart production, copyright 2018.